Welcome, everyone, to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather round to discuss current legal issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. This episode looks at the rapidly changing legal area surrounding college athletes. Recently, the General Counsel for the National Labor Relations Board issued a sweeping memorandum indicating her office is going to classify some of those athletes as employees. Uh, this shift raises a lot of legal questions about what colleges and universities are responsible for uh, in terms of benefits, in terms of the nature of the relationship. And it's really created a lot of questions, and we're going to try to answer some of those today, although I expect some will be uh, unanswered even at the end of the day. Uh, we're lucky to have two folks here with me today. Uh, my good friend and fellow attorney Mike Ingersoll uh, is here, and then we have University of North Carolina School of Law professor Barbara Osborne as well. Uh, she teaches in the area of athletics and looking at some of these issues. So Mike and Barbara, thank you so much for, for joining us. I'm looking forward to this discussion. My pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Let's, let's jump right in. I know last month, um, National Labor Relations Board General Counsel Jennifer Abruzzo issued a memorandum uh, that she called Statutory Rights of Players at Academic Institutions, paren, student athletes, under the National Labor Relations Act. Let's give a brief overview of what the memo said and why it's important, and then we can talk about some of those specifics. Um, maybe, Mike, you want to start with an overview of that memo? Sure. Uh, and I think I can summarize it pretty quickly. Essentially, General Counsel Abruzzo was dovetailing off of the Northwestern decision from the NLRB back in 2015. Um, she decided to revisit that Northwestern. I call it a decision. It was really a non-decision, is how would be the more proper characterization, where the NLRB essentially punted, no pun intended, on the decision to of whether private school college football players were uh, employees under the National Labor Relations Act, and more specifically, whether the scholarship football players at Northwestern University were employees of Northwestern University for the purposes of the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, General Counsel Abruzzo expanded on that in light of the recent Alston Supreme Court decision, and more specifically, Justice Brett Kavanaugh's concurrence in that decision, which we'll get to uh, some of the potential issues there in a moment. But essentially, she has decided that her office, the General Counsel's Office for the National Labor Relations Board, moving forward, will prosecute labor disputes under the National Labor Relations Act brought by student athletes as employment disputes and will attribute employment status to athletes, or to, I should say to college athletes who bring claims under the NLRA. Um, she leaned on very heavily Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence in the Alston decision. She also made the point of saying that any mischaracterization of college athletes as quote unquote student athletes, which is a nomenclature that's been used uh, for decades now, um, developed by Miles Brand and the NCAA back in the 70s in direct response to workers' compensation claims from college football players, that use of that terminology, student athlete, will itself be considered a violation of the National Labor Relations Act as far as her office is concerned. Uh, importantly, it's just a, it, it's, the memo is essentially guidance. It's not, uh, it hasn't been adopted by the NLRB as its official position with respect to college athletes. And more importantly, the memo itself appears to be, we'll get into this also, appears to be relatively limited. Uh, it's unclear how limited, but uh, I think it's safe to say that it only applies right now to 
private colleges and universities because the National Labor Relations Act only applies to private schools. Thanks, Mike. That's great. Barbara, I'm interested in your perspective. How, how significant is this memo? I know it's gotten a lot of attention. What, what's your view on, on is this a really a sea change? What does it mean for folks? It has gotten a ton of attention. And I think it's been mischaracterized in the attention that it's getting. And that in itself can be incredibly dangerous. The fact that the memo exists um, raises more questions than it answers, absolutely. And, you know, Mike mentioned a few things about the memo itself. Um, There's this whole section on mischaracterizing student athletes. And it does quote back to what Mike had said was this nomenclature that was made up by the NCAA. And that is actually a myth that has been perpetuated through media, through academic research, because once somebody writes it, then somebody else quotes them, and then it just (laughs) keeps getting cited over and over. But in research that was done, found that the term student athlete was actually used in a case in the 1950s. So it may be that lawyers coined that term (laughs) and not the NCAA. So I think this is, when I said it was dangerous, I think it's dangerous because I think it emboldens people to now, or, or in, in a way invites people, or I shouldn't say people, I should say it invites student athletes to file claims that they deserve to be paid as employees. And, you know, that opens a whole new can of worms. Let me ask about the term in specific, because it's certainly gotten a lot of attention. Um, I mean, let me go back to you, Mike. Do you think do you think colleges should scrub that term from their literature and replace it with something like college athletes or, you know, or is this narrow enough that it's not worth doing? I agree. It's kind of become ingrained. I think everyone knows what you're talking about when you say student athletes and it ties into all the other legal issues surrounding athletes, whether it's, you know, the image and likeness stuff that you're, that you're working on. I mean, there's a lot that goes with that terminology. Um, you know, what, what do you think is happening, should happen? I'll start with Mike. I want your take too, Barbara. Well, my, my advice to private colleges and universities, at least for the foreseeable future, would be for them to scrub that language, at least in the short term, assuming they're, they feel like they're in, in any way in danger of having to defend employment claims by their athletes uh, in front of the NLRB or in front of an investigation led by the general counsel's office at the NLRB. Um, that would be my professional advice to them in terms of risk management and risk mitigation for the short term. My personal feeling about it is that, you know, words have meaning, words matter. Uh, I'm a former college athlete myself, um, a student athlete myself. Uh, the running joke, and, I, and I'm sure that uh, Mark is, as a colleague and, and as, frankly, a superior at the law firm, I'm sure you don't want to hear this, but when I was always asked what, you know, what my major was in college, I'd tell people football and that my minor was school. The, the reality <laughs> was that it ate up you know, sports was my, you know, the, football was my focus when I was in college. It, it just, it was, I was, I took school seriously, but football ate up the majority of my schedule and the majority of my time. 
Right. And, and our listeners may not know, but Mike uh, played football at University of North Carolina and then went on to a pro career with the Buccaneers and Patriots uh, as well. So he has that, he has that experience as a athlete first and obviously now become a, uh, a lawyer first and a very good one at that. But that's, I think that is an interesting context because it's such a common term. But Barbara, what's your thoughts on, on the terminology? So um, actually, I am also a very proud former student athlete. And I always thought of myself as a student athlete, as a high school athlete, as a college athlete. Um, Barbara was an all-American track and field, correct? Right. And so track and field athletes, obviously not the revenue producing media firestorm, I guess, that football, college football is, right? But um, it's interesting saying that misclassifying as a student athlete, I don't necessarily know that just using the term misclassifies as much as you need to now, according to that memo, you need to identify these people as employees. And the NCA rules right now don't allow that. <laughs> so we have, you know, we have right. a conundrum, right? Um, so, so from a legal sense, you want to give advice saying you don't want to risk misclassifying someone by using this terminology, but by using that terminology, you're setting your institution up for being investigated for NCA rules infractions, which are also costly and create litigation, right? Yeah, so it really is. It sounds like a potential catch twenty two between the you know trying to follow this guidance and then the and the, the rules. Let me let me take a step back and I know we may not have a perfect answer, but do you guys have a sense of what group of college athletes are covered by this memo? In other words, is it everybody that you know plays a sport on a college team? Is it only the the high-profile football players and or basketball players that get all the attention and seem to be the subject of these other NLRB actions. What what do you think, Mike? Let's start with you. Who's covered? Yeah, yeah. so the – and I, I think Barbara and I are on the same page with this. The memo is very squishy. Um, it defines certain players as a defined term, you know, capitalized term in the memo itself, but it doesn't actually provide the definition for the defined term. Um, we already talked about universities and – um, it mentions, you know, mentions at colleges and universities capitalized. It doesn't specify whether that's all colleges and universities, but the NLRB uh, has jurisdiction only over private colleges and universities. So we think it's safe to say that this only applies to private colleges and universities in terms of the number of athletes and which athletes it applies to. Yeah, I'll, I'll take it back to the Northwestern decision, the Northwestern, or I should say the non-decision, um, the, the, the Northwestern non-decision applied only to and explicitly applied only to scholarship football players at Northwestern University. Uh, It provided no opinion on other athletes and other sports at other universities, public or private. So whether the memo itself applies to all scholarship athletes across all sports, men's and women's, whether it applies to only revenue sport athletes, which would be, you know, college football and basketball, uh, whether it applies to only scholarship players or if it applies to everybody on the roster at every private school um, mm. in every sport or to only limited sports is at this point unclear. And it's one of those sort of wait and see things. We need to wait and see how this actually gets enforced by the general counsel's office to see exactly the full scope or the intended scope of the memorandum. But what I will say is that it reads the memo reads 
very much like an advocacy piece. Um, so my assumption would be that it, it is intended to apply as broadly as Abruzzo and the general counsel's office can make it apply. But in terms of its explicit language, it's unclear from the memo itself what the full scope of it is. Gotcha. I, I see you nodding quite a bit as Mike's been talking, Barbara. Anything you want to anything you want to add in uh, to, to Mike? Yeah, no, absolutely. Everything you said was correct. The whole certain players thing um, makes it very, very unclear. She, the only sport she mentions specifically in the memo at all is football. And so if that is the tie going back, it's hard to say whether it is just about football and then therefore just about scholarship athletes in football, like they said in um, the regional director's opinion in the Northwestern NLRB situation, um, which again, opens another whole can of worms because if you're only talking about scholarship football players and protecting them under the NLRA, you're sort of leaving vulnerable. You're protecting the athletes that already get the most and you're leaving vulnerable everybody else. Yeah, that's a good point. And let's talk about, I think, again, a lot of the headlines have mischaracterized this as some super broad, every athlete is now an employee. That's not really the memo. And I think it's worth reminding our listeners what you, you just mentioned, the NLRN. National Labor Relations Act, which is enforced by the National Relations Board, right? Isn't it? We're really talking primarily about things like organizing, the right to organize, you know, and speak, act collectively, the collective bargaining piece. This is not employee for all purposes. And we'll talk about what, you know, potential implications, but I think that's, you know, that's important. So uh, what, what kind of things assume for this, whatever, fairly small group of scholarship athletes or maybe some other sports, what are, what are the rights that, you know, these private colleges and universities need to think about and be aware of? Barbara, you want to start with that and then we'll let Mike, you know, chime in. Sure. So under the NLRA, it's all about um, the ability to unionize and to engage in activities that would be related to exploring unionization or unionizing and then the employer being prohibited from interfering with that activity in any way. Otherwise, it would be considered an unfair labor practice. And so Section 8 and Section 7 of the NLRA are the ones that were expressly mentioned in that memo. So basically what she's saying is if these athletes want to unionize, you can't, you know, we're going to support that and you can't interfere. But, but again, that just opens up so many more questions than there are answers in that you know, document. Are we still only talking about football players? Are we still only talking about college, um, private colleges and universities? Um, if you are expanding that to revenue-producing sports, well, revenue-producing sports are different at different schools. And honestly, football is a revenue generating sport, but most colleges and universities do not make a profit on their football team. They're spending more money on football than they're making on football. So does that now become a revenue producing sport mm. um, if, if you, know, you are in the red? So again, many, many more questions than there are answers. And, um, you know, I mean, at Georgia, 
gymnastics makes a profit. So should the gymnastics team be looking at organizing and unionizing? And then are specific teams going to unionize and then negotiate with their schools? Or can all the athletes at a school unionize together against the athletics department or the university as their employer? And then there's all this stuff about joint employer theory and should athletes unionize against the NCAA and be negotiating directly with the NCAA about the NCAA rules. Um, And that one's, you know, that becomes really crazy if only the private schools get to negotiate. So, um, (laughs) yeah, way more questions than we have answers. (laughs) Yep. Mike, I mean, is unionizing type activity something athletes have done historically? Is that something we have seen in private or public schools or athletic groups? I I guess part of me wonders, and obviously we may see more of it now that we have this widely publicized opinion, and maybe that was the intent. I'm I'm just wondering, historically, has this collective, you know, bargaining unionization thing been something that's been even done? Or is this really an invitation for new types of organizing conduct that maybe we haven't historically seen? Uh, I would say that from a legal standpoint, no, there's been no legal unionization or union union activities that I'm aware of amongst any college athletes in any sport anywhere ever. There may be little pockets of attempts here and there that get squashed fairly quickly. And which brings me to my practical point, which is as an athlete, it's made very clear to you very early on, both in college and before then, that when you participate on a team, you are part of a dictatorship, not a democracy. So there is no uh, players banding together and forcing the coach and forcing the program to do something that the coaching staff and the administration doesn't want to happen in terms of the direction of that program or the goals of that program. Uh, the powers that be are going to control that conduct and are going to control that direction uh, with an iron fist, to, to put it mildly. So you know, any any movies or TV shows or small anecdotes here and there about the team rising up and collectively forcing the school or the, the coach or the, uh, the program to do something that it wasn't otherwise going to do. I think those things are nice in theory, but in practice are relatively non-existent. Following up on that, I do think, I, I absolutely agree that this is not something that athletes think about doing because there's too much personally at stake for them. I mean, you don't find horrible things happen within athletics programs and you don't have athletes coming forward to report that because of the potential repercussions. Now, this memo says that schools will be punished for Section 8 violations if they try to interfere in any way. So that might empower athletes to try to take that step. But again, when you fear that your own personal best interests may not be served by doing that, you don't have a lot of motivation to test the waters, so to speak. Um, The flip side of that is, is that we do see student athletes now, you know, through the free speech aspect, Mm -hmm. um, coming together and uniting for causes. And I actually kind of see that as a more efficient and a more hospitable way to try to create a dialogue. So if athletes have concerns, opening the door and having a dialogue with them um, to find out what those concerns are and, and what things could be done to make things better would go a long way. But I honestly don't see that as we're going to unionize so that you have to take us seriously. I think it's from their 
you know, just presence in the moment at this time in our history where, you know, people's voices collectively are beginning to be heard. A good example of that is last season's college football season when you saw several several teams amongst the Power Five conferences uh, sort of banded together, whether it be through a hashtag or some other type of social media campaign. And I don't want to say forced the conferences to have the season, but certainly influenced it. So the players' voices were heard, but that that's reconcilable with the point that I just made, that you're never going to force the school or force the conference to do something it wasn't going to originally do or wasn't at least considering, um, but you can certainly influence it. So you know that sort of thing, to answer your question, Mark, that sort of thing does happen and it has happened in the recent past with COVID restrictions and players uh, influencing their conferences that hold their respective football seasons. You also saw it, though, again, like Barbara's point, the flip side is that you, you use the Ivy League as an example. Um, the ACC and the SEC, they held their seasons on time, on schedule, uh, despite COVID restrictions last year. Um, the Ivy League, though players said we want to play and we don't want to cancel our seasons, uh, the Ivy League said, too bad, we're going to hold the season in the spring. And that left a lot of players in the lurch if they were seniors and they graduated in December. I was a December graduate myself. If I had been playing in the Ivy League, I wouldn't have been able to have my senior season because football season was played in the spring and it was played on a truncated or I should say a very abbreviated uh, schedule, you know, much fewer games. So that's the yin and the yang, the push and the pull of player influence. But I, I will certainly say that from a unionization standpoint or a players directing the school, conference, university in terms of policy standpoint, that thing th- that doesn't typically happen. Gotcha. So if I'm understanding, what we do have is we have some small group of college athletes. Well, we're not sure how small, but at least scholarship football players in revenue generating schools. You know, that seems like the smallest, maybe more, maybe more sports, maybe all revenue generating, maybe all athletes uh, have the right to organize under the NLRA. I guess the next question is a lot of publicity has been asked about, well, if they're employees, there's a bunch of other things we need to worry about, everything from unemployment insurance to uh, Title VII protections and discrimination. You know, there's a whole host of rules that go with employees that don't generally go with students. So I guess the question is, does the reclassification of at least some group of people as employees under under this NLRB memo, does that impact other areas or do we think it's going to spread to other areas? Let me start with you, Mike, and then then get Barbara to chime in. Um, I will say that it has already started to spread to other areas. There was a recent decision out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, um, recent as in, you know, within the last 30 days, um, that's now up on appeal. Now, it's very, this is something else to Barbara's point that the media tends to misclassify things, exaggerate things, and sensationalize things. Uh, broader and, and you know much larger grandiose respect than I think you know they, it actually means. But this Eastern District of Pennsylvania case, it was it was brought by college athletes at various schools alleging employment status under the Fair Labor Standards Act. So now we're talking wow. federal statutory scheme um, alleging employment status under the FLSA, wanting wages. It's a you know it's a minimum wage case. Um, it survived the motion to dismiss. And it survived a challenge to the preliminary injunction. It is now up on appeal. Um, how that appeal turns out, you know, we'll see. But because of the preliminary injunction, it was immediately appealable. So that's that's why this case is moving along much faster. Um, that case, that this recent Eastern District of Pennsylvania decision, flies directly in the face of 
uh, recent, I say recent within the last few years, Seventh Circuit precedent, where the Seventh Circuit fielded a similar, you know, employment challenge under the FLSA and kicked it and just and said, no, this is nonsense, essentially. They're not employees. There's no employment status here. The FLSA doesn't apply to college athletes. You know, we're done here. This decision out of the EDPA goes directly against that Seventh Circuit precedent. It's now obviously up on appeal at the Court of Appeals. So we'll see what happens here in light of the Austin decision, in light of the NLRB memo, both of which were cited in that Eastern District of Pennsylvania decision at the district court level. Um, We'll see what ends up happening here at the appellate level in light of those decisions, which obviously are a huge progressive move from where the former Seventh Circuit opinion was at the time that that Seventh Circuit case was decided. And that was the Seventh Circuit was the Berger decision. So, um, you know, at the time that Berger was decided, the landscape was substantially different than it is now. So I'll say that we've already started to see it bleed over. There are now, (laughs) thanks to this district court decision out of the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, the EDPA has become somewhat of a hotbed for these FLSA cases. There are several more that have been filed, many of which are, you know, being either dismissed now on jurisdictional bases or are being challenged by the defendant universities on jurisdictional bases. Um, But everything seems to be getting dragged towards the Eastern District of Pennsylvania since that district court decision came out. Um, So we will see, and from a litigation standpoint, whether this NLRB memo, which need to go ahead and make very clear, is not binding on the NLRB. It has not been adopted by the NLRB as its official position. But it remains to be seen whether this memo, this very simple administrative guidance under the NL, you know, for the NLRA and unionization, again, we've talked about how limited it is, and whether that's going to bleed into federal and state litigation under federal and state legislation moving forward. Um, and as we've seen, like I just described, in the Eastern District of Pennsylvania, it already has. So um, it, it seems it, it, that happens substantially faster than I thought it would. Um, I don't think it's going to slow down. I think over the next 10 years, you're going to see, regardless of what happens with the NLRB and Jennifer Abruzzo's memo, um, even if the NLRB comes out and says, you know, we're not going to adopt this as our official position, say a new presidential administration comes into office in the next four or the next, you know, however many years are left now, two to six years. Um, if they come in, you know, NLRB positions and NLRB guidance tends to change. With the administration that's in office, um, we've seen that they flip-flopped on their positions on many things in the employment context. Um, you know whether that changes because of changes politically, because of changes internally, or because they just decide not to adopt Abruzzo's memo altogether. I think the backstop, if you're a players' rights advocate, if you're a plaintiff's attorney who's looking to bring fair labor standards cases and other employment-related cases in, in federal or state court. I think the backstop to all that is going to be the Austin decision out of the Supreme Court. I think that um, Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence is going to create a lot of smoke. Again, it's a concurrence. Um, Barbara and I were talking offline a little bit about this, and I'm sure she'll expand on this point. But you know, the concurrence decided and, and offered opinions on things that were not directly in front of the Supreme Court in the Austin case, that weren't before the majority and were the basis of the majority opinion. It went much beyond that. Um, but that concurrence is being cited over and over and over again now. We're seeing both in academic articles, in news articles, and now in actual litigation being filed in federal court. That concurrence is being cited as a basis for moving forward with some of these federal and state claims. So whereas the NLRB memo might not have the punch or have the teeth 
um, that I think players' rights advocates would like it to have. At the point that you start getting more favorable federal and state court decisions in litigation, now you are going to have that teeth. Now you will have that impact and you'll have that influence that didn't previously exist before the NLRB memo and before the Austin decision from this past summer. Yeah, so, I mean, Micah said a lot. Um, from Which is my way, and I'm very sorry. No, 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 from the litigation perspective, but if you're talking, you know, what is the slippery slope that's been created here? So let's assume that student-athletes are now employees, which obviously means that they now have to pay taxes, that their scholarship is income instead of an academic scholarship, or they now need to be paid wages if they are non-scholarship. If that applies, we don't know yet. For anybody who's getting need-based financial aid or Pell Grants, even if you're on a full scholarship, uh, many, many football players and men's basketball players also qualify because of need for additional funding beyond their academic scholarships. If this is now income, how does that affect their ability to qualify for this additional aid, that becomes a problem, right? For student athletes who are still dependents on their family's taxes, you know, are they going to have to be um, no longer dependents or how is this going to be taxed on their family, you know, parents filing jointly or whatever? Um, so there's all sorts of tax implications here. Um, you know, from that workers' compensation perspective, if you're an employee and you're hurt on the job, then you can qualify for workers' compensation. We have this long line of workers' compensation cases, and we have some states that expressly exclude student athletes from their workers' compensation. But all these other workers' compensation cases in the past have said student athletes are absolutely not employees. And the other thing about the memo is that... Um, it, it really, it, well, okay, so going back to what Mike said about the Alston case, you have an antitrust case. And as you all know, that in law, you don't just say, well, I'll take this little thing from antitrust law and I'll now apply that to labor law or I'll take something from tort and apply it to criminal law or something else, right? All those little areas of law are in their own separate silos. And what you see right now happening is language from a case that was related to antitrust now affecting all sorts of other areas of law. And so we don't even know where that's going to go. Well, not just, not, not just antitrust, just, it was name, image, and likeness issues also, which are unrelated to employment. That is, if you really want to boil that down, that is the athlete's ability to participate in the free market and generate income from their from their name, image, and likeness. That is separate and apart from their participation on their specific sports team or their enrollment at that school. That is not a labor question. That's a, I can go out and make money off my face uh, somewhere else on my own, you know, with no involvement from my school. My school is not tied to that income. The labor issue brings the school directly into that. So we've now taken, you know, name, image, and likeness, which I thought was a monumental step and as an athlete, I thought in the right direction. Um, I also thought it was the it is the logical end to where this this issue should go. Um, athletes can now go out, and if I want to contract with a local car dealership or with Hardee's in my college town, you know, if I want to do that, 
I can have them pay me so long as my school's not involved. They can't help me get paid. I can't use my jersey or school logos, typically, depending on the restrictions from that school or, or conference. Um, you know, I, that is my own thing. That's my own enterprise, separate and apart from my enrollment at the university. That was the best of both worlds. It allowed students to participate in the free market. And if they can make money off their face, great. Go make money off your face. If you can't, you can't. But the market has spoken. You left your school out of it. And you left all the benefits of being a scholarship athlete or even a non-scholarship athlete at your university. You left all that intact. Now those waters have been muddied, um, and I and that's that that creates an an intersection of those two concepts: the name, image, and likeness, and the labor and employment concept. That creates an intersection there that I don't necessarily know can be reconciled. And well, the thing is, is that the Alston decision is also being mischaracterized because the majority in Alston said that the Ninth Circuit and then the Northern District of California, who's the one that set up the whole thing in the first place, had found the right balance between supporting student athletes and not limiting their education-related benefits, but not crossing the line into paying them for their participation as athletes. That's, that's what the majority said. Right. And now you have this other stuff saying, no, we think you should pay them, even though the Supreme Court's decision very clearly said we're Alston very clearly said that they were supporting that concept of student athlete with unlimited education related benefits and no pay for playing. Correct. And um, and so people are really mischaracterizing Alston based again on what Mike had said about expanding of Kavanaugh's, what I call rant, um, which was really not at the question that was in front of the court, but was just his rant about what he wanted to talk about. And so, yeah, it's muddy water there. Let me ask, Mike, you, you mentioned that the NLRB has not adopted this memo or rejected it. I guess it's a two-part quick question. One is, is it effective without being adopted by the board itself? And and what impact would a board adoption or a board rejection have as a, you know, as a legal or practical matter? I guess what what's the difference between having the, you know, her issue the memo as the general counsel versus action by the board? Yeah, so legally, it's a in terms of the effective question, it's effective only insofar as Abruzzo is effectively going to prosecute claims under the NLRA. Her office is going to investigate and prosecute claims with the assumption that uh, a college athlete bringing those claims is an employee of that private college or university. That investigation or that case will then go before the NLRB, the board itself, and the board will issue a decision. The board doesn't have to side with Abruzzo in her office. She pulls the facts together, presents the facts to the board. The board then makes that call, which leads to the second question. If the board were to reject this opinion or this position as its official position and say, no, 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 we, we like where we are. Um, we're not going to attribute employee status for the purposes of unionization and, and whatnot under Section 7 and 8 of the NLRA to college athletes, um, specifically football players and however many this may apply to. We're not going to extend our position to include all them under, you know, for employment status purposes, that essentially kills it. Um, Abruzzo is bound by the board in their position. The, where she has now, the, the reason she was able to do this is because there's somewhat of a gray area 
following the Northwestern decision as to what the board's position is regarding employment status for athletes. Again, the the Northwestern decision in 2015 was essentially a non-decision. They they explicitly said, we offer no opinion on whether college athletes are employees for the purposes of unionization in the NLRA in some. Um, so she has taken that gray area and then developments in some other cases. Um, there was a case out of Columbia University shortly after Northwestern. Um, and there are some other decisions involving graduate students and employment status uh, for graduate students in terms of workers' compensation and sort of the benefits they can be given from the school as quote-unquote employees. She was able to mush all that together uh, in a way that I think Barbara would say in law school, I would have mushed it together. Um, she was able to mush it all together and come out and say, you know, this is the way my office as the general counsel is now going to proceed on this. But if the board rejects her position, then then we're done. She's bound by the board's decision. What she has going for her right now is that there is no board position explicitly on this, and they're going to have to they're going to stake one out. Um, th this is going to come to a head. I'm sure they their general counsel's office will find a way to fast track this and find a case to get it to the board so that there can be an official position. If the board adopts it, then at least for the time being, that will be the NLRB's position under the National Labor Relations Act, and any claims brought under the NLRA that come before the board, the assumption will have to be that if it's a college athlete bringing those claims, so long as they meet the criteria of whatever decision the board comes down with previously, if the, if the athlete falls within the scope of the board's, quote, position, then the case will have to proceed under that assumption that that particular athlete is an employee for the purposes of the NLRA. Obviously, neither of those situations has taken place. There is no official decision there is no official adoption. There is no official rejection. We don't know when that's going to be. And the practical reality is, again, that with changing political administrations, the board itself may change. So even if they do adopt it or even if they do reject it as an official position, that could change later. That's what makes mm -hmm. this all. That's when I talk about the teeth that this memo might actually have. You know, you can talk about the teeth that a board position might actually have, too. It will change with the wind. It'll change as administrations change. We've seen that throughout the history of the NLRB, where the real teeth are, again, is federal and state decisions in federal and state litigation under statutes like the Fair Labor Standards Act. Um, when, those, when, when those cases start to pop off and they start to become um, affirmative decisions in favor of college athletes for the purposes of wages, for the purposes of employment and whatnot, that's where you'll start to see a little bit of a sea change when that legal precedent starts to build and that case right. law starts to build. Anything under the NLRB right now, again, like I said, can change with the wind and the memo itself is simply guidance. It's not binding. The thing that stops that potential, you know, wave of litigation really quickly, because right now we're in wait and see land. But the thing that will stop all of this and, and definitively decide it is if we have federal legislation. And Which there's been a lot of lobbying for. There's been a lot of lobbying for that. Um, and the proposals that um, have been made so far that are all in various committees or have been withdrawn um, run the gamut from really supporting the NCAA and everything the way that the NCAA has done it in the past to, you know, Bernie Sanders and the College Athlete Bill of Rights, which goes way, way beyond what anybody's been talking about, you know, practically. So, um, 
you know, there's that potential that that all of this unknown stuff sort of forces Congress's hand to address all of these unknown issues through legislation. Um, you know, back to that whole employee aspect and the whole value of precedent. Um, there are 37 cases that have been decided that state very, very clearly that student athletes are not employees. Um, student athletes do not have rights as athletes and that they are voluntary participants in an extracurricular activity. And so we have to also reconcile the precedent from all of those cases in how we do this stuff going forward. It's great. Well, I think you've done a great job kind of going beyond the headlines to actually talk about what this memo is and isn't. Let me give you, I know we're almost out of time, one one chance for any final parting comments, words of wisdom, takeaway. You've, you've given that preview of where we may be going, either on the legislative or judicial front. Mike, let me start with you. Any Anything else you want to add to, uh, that we may not have had a chance to address so far or any final comments? Uh, yeah, I, I don't think that this is... I don't think anything's on fire right now. I'd say that that's contrary to the impression folks may get from media coverage and really from you know personal opinions from athletes and maybe what they're seeing on television right now. I don't think that things are, I don't think the sea change has happened yet. I do think that to the extent Justice Kavanaugh's concurrence continues to gain traction, he did provide a roadmap for the employment argument moving forward in federal and state legislation and federal and state litigation as well. He's provided that roadmap for those challenges and absent some legislation, some legislative fix, um, if that concurrence does take hold and that becomes, you know, which again is rare with Supreme Court decisions that a concurrence or a dissent actually becomes sort of, you know, the, the crux of an opinion. If that becomes the crux of that Austin decision, and it expands beyond the antitrust and beyond the name, image, and likeness space, and now is gets continually and consistently used in the labor and employment context, I do think at that point, there may be issues. And those issues could extend to not just private colleges and universities, but also to public ones. Um, right now, though, I think that the NLRB memo is limited to only private schools. I think that it's limited to a very discrete class of athletes. And I also think that it's limited in terms of its actual uh, impact. It's only guidance. There is no official position yet. Um, schools will be wise to heed some of the forecasting that's in that memo uh, and make some adjustments to their internal practices for the short term. Uh, but I don't think that, I, again, I don't think anything's on fire. There should be no rush to judgment at this point until we have some final binding case law and a final binding opinion uh, and position by the NLRB. Great. Thanks. Barbara, I'll let you have the final word. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree. I don't think it's a disaster yet. I think there are so many unknowns um, that there are a lot of people that are just playing wait and see right now because there are, frankly, more questions than answers. Um, if there is traction, obviously the legislature always, if they think the Supreme Court decided wrong, they always have the ability to create legislation to fix that. And so we may see that, but then on the other hand, there's the be careful what you wish for, because I don't know necessarily that our federal legislature um, is 
in a position right now to fix things very well. <laughs> um, you know, and, and honestly, the NCAA gets bashed constantly, but the NCAA is made up of its member schools and it's the expertise of the people who lead those programs that are making the decisions. And all of them know a lot more about college athletics than any legislator does. So, you know, wanting a solution from the legislature may not be, you know, a good thing either. I think there's a lot of concern and a lot of worry and not a lot of answers right now. And, um, and people have to really be careful what they wish for. Great. Thank you. Thank you so much, Barbara. Thank you, Mike. Very interesting and, and timely podcast. So I appreciate both of you covering it. Um, that does bring us to the end of the show. I want to remind our listeners, you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to the podcast at the website WombleBondDickinson.com or on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station.